Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this night, this time that we have together to be in your word. I once again find myself so grateful, so thankful to you for your word and for the truth that we see in it and for what it reveals to us about you, about ourselves, about how you created things to be. Lord, we, we would be lost without your word. And, and so we thank you that you have given this to us, you've preserved this for us. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would bless our time that we have together over the next hour. I ask that you would um, calm my mind and heart. I pray that um, your word would be um, clear to us, that we would have understanding, and we, that we would be changed by it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week. So this, we are in part two of the law applied, right? So we have been deep, taking a deep dive into the law of God um, that was written thousands of years ago to the nation of Israel. And last week, one, the, the two themes that seemed to come out of the text that we were looking at last week was the preservation and pursuit of life and dignity of image bearers. Okay, that was the one theme that I, we saw as we worked through the chapters. The other thing that we saw was the preservation and pursuit. I've got all these alliterations and it's hard for me to say it. Preservation and pursuit of the purity of God's covenant people. Those were the two things that we saw last week. This week, I saw once again two themes um, as I studied through the text. But this week, I think Deuteronomy 23 through 25 is best summed up in this verse, James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I think this is a be beautifully encapsulates what we've been looking at all week long. Two things the purity, personal purity of the people of God. Again, it's a theme that we're seeing pretty much week in and week out. We have a holy God and he calls his people to be holy. And so the purity of his covenant people is a theme that is woven every single week. And it's also brought into the New Testament. To be unstained from the world is to be pure, a, a pure people. But the other theme that we see in, in our passage this week is how to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. It is talking about the vulnerable. How do we care for the vulnerable? What does it look like to live among, amongst people who are, that are struggling financially or socioeconomically beneath us? There, so this text this week is talking about justice and how we live justly as a people of God and is talking about the unstained from the world. So with James's words ringing in our heads and in our hearts, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 23 together. We'll start with verse 1. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Aren't you guys glad you came? Yes, that's a great way to start out our passage. Um, so let's talk first about the assembly of the Lord. What is it that we're talking about? What is it that God is referring to? Now, the assembly of the Lord is an unusual um, phrase for Deuteronomy. It's not seen um, anywhere, very, very few places, actually. Typically, it's re re, um, referred to the assembly of Israel, which would be the people of God, the nation of Israel. But this specifically calls it the assembly of the Lord. And what this is referring to is that the assembly of the Lord is the formal worship of the Lord. When the people of God, the covenant people, were gathered together in Jerusalem at the tabernacle or later at the temple, they would be gathered together offering their sacrifices, offering their worship to God. And so we're talking specifically about the people's worship, the assembly of the Lord, where they're entering into the presence of God. It is in this context that Moses commands, instructs them that no one who has is a eunuch is able to enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, castration, intentional castration, means to induce impotence or to remove sexuality. It is to induce impotence or remove sexuality. So in the ancient context, it was a common practice 
for rulers to castrate their slaves or their servants in order to subdue them. That would be especially true in the case of a servant or a slave that would be working in the ruler's harem so that they wouldn't go after the women in the harem anymore. But it was also common practice to self-mutilate or to intentionally castrate oneself in the um, pagan religious worship. So there were two kind of things going on here, and this is what God is referring to in his law, that this intentional castration that would have um, seeking to be a part of pagan worship, um, that would have removed their um, sexual sexuality, um, that was those people were to be prohibited from entering into the worship of the Lord. Let's continue on in verse two. No one born of a forbidden union, which would be an illicit sexual relationship, such as perhaps an Israelite union with a Canaanite, or perhaps cult prostitution, or a variety of other sexual um, immoralities. No one born of a forbidden unit, union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. And that means to the 10th generation is symbolic meaning forever. They were never to be allowed into the presence of the Lord. None of his descendants may enter to the assembly of the Lord. Verse three, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why was this? The text tells us why. Well, the Ammonites did not meet Israel's basic needs. When Israel was leaving Egypt and they were in the wilderness, they came across the Ammonite people and apparently the Ammonite people would give them no bread, no water. We're talking the basic essentials for life. This is, goes beyond not offering hospitality. It's the basic essentials of life that Israel would have needed and they refused to give that to them. And when, I, when we think about that, does not the words of Jesus come into our minds? When Jesus speaking um, in Matthew 25 and he's talking to the people and he talks about um, those who fed him when he was hungry and those who um, did not uh, or gave him something to drink when he was thirsty. Do you remember that passage of scripture? He says in 25 verse 41 of Matthew, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. This is why the Ammonites were not permitted to enter uh, into the fellowship and the worship of the Lord because they gave the Lord nothing to drink when he was thirsty. They gave him no bread when he was hungry. It's a, God himself identifies so closely with, with his people that to do this to Israel and to do this to the people of God today is to do it as to the Lord, as to him. And so they were not permitted in, into the assembly of the Lord. The Moabites were not permitted into the assembly of the Lord as well because the king of Moab hired the prophet Balaam to curse the people of Israel. Instead of blessing them, they wanted, he, he wanted them to be cursed. And no matter what Balaam tried to do, he couldn't do it. And God turned that blessing into a curse. Look at verse 5. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, of the Lord, instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Verse 7 goes on. You shall not abhor an Edomite who are the descendants of Esau, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you are a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So after three generations, there would be no doubt that they were genuine in their desire to be full members of the worshiping family of God, and they were allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. So there is, in a nutshell, in summary of all of these verses, there is this understanding that there is to be no uncleanness, no unwholesomeness, no um, illicitness brought into the worship of the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God, for he is a holy God. Likewise, the passage goes on to teach us that there was to be no uncleanness in their camps. Verse 9 says, when you are encamped against your enemies, which is a throwback to Deuteronomy 20 that we saw last week, and the laws concerning the war, which was referring to the Canaanite conquest. So when they go out to war and they are in their camps, 
There was to be no uncleanness in the camp. It said, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. Every evil thing, anything that's sinful, they were to keep themselves from. So they were to keep themselves spiritually pure, but also physically pure. And the text goes on to explain some examples of things that they would need to clean up after. And if you guys have any questions about that, I'm just not going to get into that right now. But if you have any questions about what these things are, just come and talk to me after class. But there were cleansing processes that they needed to go. They would go outside the camp for a period of time and be cleansed before they come back into the camp. Um, and it says, drop down into verse 14, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of the camp. Again, the reason for, for cleansing and the reason for purity, both spiritually and physically, was because of the presence of the Lord their God. So he was in their midst, in the midst of their camp, to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. So because of the Lord's holiness, because of his presence, no indecent thing should be in his midst. Now, I don't know about you, but these passages make me feel a bit uncomfortable, just a little bit uncomfortable. It's hard to read about all of these processes of cleansing and all of these um, going outside the camp. It's hard to read about people who are not permitted ever to enter into the presence of the worship of God. It's hard to read that because something inside of us is triggered a little bit and we're like, that's just not fair. That's not fair, right? That's how we think and that's how we often respond to the word of God. We think God's not fair. As if we're somehow more holy and more just than God. But here's the thing. God is just. and God is holy. And there's not a one of us that has any right to enter into his presence ever because of the sin that is in our life. These passages help us see the holiness of God. They help us see our sinfulness. They help us understand that we have no rights. We have no right to be in his presence. They help us through these passages about external cleanliness points to our need for internal cleanliness in the same way that the bodies, our bodies needed to be cleaned and cleansed from the our souls need to be cleaned and cleansed from the excrement of sin. It needs to be removed. And so does the sin need to be removed from our hearts. But the word of God does not just leave us in this place of you have no business and you have no right going into the presence of God ever. It gives us good news. The word of God tells us and shows us the good news of God's grace. And I want to take just a few minutes before we continue on with, with our study to look into the face of grace. Now, we're going to do that through a genealogy because genealogies in the Bible are awesome. They're not boring at all. They're actually very exciting. Did you know that? You're going to love genealogies from now on. I know it. We're going to look at a genealogy in the book of Ruth, Ruth 4, and it's in 18 through 22. It's a short one. And it begins like this. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Do you know who Perez was? Perez is a man that was born of an illicit relationship between Judah, one of Jacob's sons, and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who was a Canaanite and also posed as a prostitute to seduce him into giving her a child. This is Perez in this genealogy, born of an illicit relationship. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon, let's stop with him. Salmon is the one who married Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, when they entered into the land. And Salmon and Rahab fathered Boaz, and Boaz, who was married to Ruth, a Moabite woman, fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse 
father David, the king of Israel. Now, in that genealogy alone, we have a Moabite brought into the people of God. We have a Canaanite brought into the people of God. We have people from illicit relationships brought into the people of God. What is going on here? This, my friends, is the grace of God. Nobody is deserving of being brought into the, into the fellowship and worship of God, but by his grace, those who are excluded, those who are cut off, are brought in. Not only are these, these relationships in, in the line of David, the king of Israel, but if you go into Matthew chapter 1, you will see every one of those names in the, in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They were brought in to Jesus himself. This is grace. And we wouldn't see, and we wouldn't be able to understand, and we wouldn't be able to know the magnificence of God's grace if we did not first understand how cut off we are from his presence. Praise God for his grace. It's all of grace. The Old Testament continues on to, to announce this grace of people being included into the assembly of, of, of God's presence who shouldn't be. In Isaiah 56, we have a promise that says this in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. He, Isaiah is speaking specifically of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the salvation that is coming, that is promised in Isaiah, and Jesus is the righteousness that is promised, that is being revealed. And it was Jesus who, through his shed blood on the cross, brought all of us who have been separated and cut off from the covenant of God into the presence of God, into the worship of God. Because he was cut off, we have been brought in and given salvation and given righteousness. And that's why the Isaiah continues on in this passage of scripture. He says, let, the, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. This is the promise of the Old Testament pointing us to Jesus. This is why Rahab, this is why Tamar, this is why all of those people in the genealogy were brought in because of Jesus. Verse 8 in that same passage in Isaiah says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This is the promise of God's word, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that those of us who are excluded from the assembly of the people of the Lord can be brought in, can be brought near. Should that, does that not fill your heart with wonder at a God who would go to such great lengths to bring people who have been rightly cut off from the worship of him into his presence, making, washing us and making us clean? May we never lose the wonder of this. May the truth of what it takes to make a people holy to the Lord, a people pure, a people clean, continually be the fuel that propels us to live different lives, to actually live into the holiness that has been given to us, to live in humble gratitude and submission to the word of God, and to walk justly, just as the scripture teaches us. So with that in mind, let us continue on. Last, in the last couple of weeks, we, we heard um, justice and only justice you shall seek. So many of the rest of the laws in the rest of our text today have to do with justice. How do they live in this context justly as people who are just and, and um, in the midst of, of the congregation of Israel? So these very same laws, which may not seem applicable to us today, do continue to teach us what God's justice actually is. They teach us, in this old context, how to live justly today. Now, just a side note, as I go through these laws, I'm going to like be all over the map. 
I am going to be clumping together tax, jumping from here to there, from 23 to 24 to 23 to 24. It's going to be a little wild. And I'm giving you the heads up. It's going to require some active listening on your part. It will keep you awake, I hope, and on your toes. And I hope I don't confuse all of us. So let's begin. And um, we're going to start with verse 15 of, Je of Deuteronomy chapter 23. Verse 15 says, you shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst and in the place that he shall choose, which within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. So we have a picture of a, a situation where a slave who escapes from his master in a foreign country is to be given sanctuary in Israel. This slave ran away because he was oppressed. So when slavery turns to oppression, Israel must grant that slave exodus. They must grant that slave exodus for they too were once slaves whom God had set free. Well, just as Israel was set free from slavery in Egypt by a miraculous act of God, we too have been set free from slavery by a miraculous act of God. We have all been under the slavery of sin, but because of God's grace and because of his mercy and his redemption and his salvation, his power, he has set us free from slavery to sin. And so it has no power over us. It has no authority over us. And we are free to live and serve the God who redeemed us. And I think the principle that we can bring forward from this, these verses is that as God continues to set people free from slavery to sin, we envelope them in. They become a part of the people of God. They become um, enveloped into the body of Christ, and we love them and serve them and train them in the word so that they know better how to walk in the freedom that they have been given. Let's continue on. Deuteronomy 23, verse 17 says, None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God, both being cult prostitute and, and also bringing the wage of a prostitute into the house of the Lord for a vow offering, are an abomination to the Lord. Cold prostitution was a particular class of temple personnel that carried out their duties in relation to fertility rituals for certain prostitutes. So they would prostitute themselves. They would commit sexual acts in the temple of whatever pagan god it was in order for that god to give them the fertility they desired, whether it was offspring, children, whether it was fertility of the land. This was a common practice in the pagan culture of that day. It was going on all over the place. And God says, this is forbidden in my house of worship. This is not to be in my house. of. This is not how I am to be worshipped. Nor are you to bring the fee, because this is dirty money. You're not to bring that in payment of the Lord your God for a vow. So like a payment for a vow was an offering of gratitude for the Lord's provision in answer to prayer or in answer to worship. And in some ways, what, what we're talking about here is an amalgamation of two kinds of worship. The worship that was going on in that land, that pagan worship, was being brought into the house of the Lord. And it was being used to give thanks to God for his provision to them. There's, an, there's a syncretism going on in this passage of scripture that God is absolutely forbidding for his people. Do not worship me. We've heard this over and over. Do not worship me in the way of the pagans. Syncretism is just that. It's the combination of different forms of belief and practice. Now this seems very foreign to us. We don't have cult prostitution happening in, in our houses of worship today, praise God for progress, but syncretism is still a problem. What's underneath this is still an issue in our, in our congregations, in our churches today. One example, and there are many, but I just chose one, is the com combining of the New Age religion with Christianity. And I think this is one of the most popular syncretisms that is happening today. And it's subtle. And it sounds very spiritual and it sounds very holy, but it's taking Hindu religion or other religions and bringing it into the worship of God. Do not be deceived. 
This is not genuine Christianity, but rather it is a pollution of Christianity. It is prostituting Christianity. And it's an abomination to the Lord. It's serious. Once again, we need as women of God to be discerning. We need to know how God has prescribed his worship, how we are to worship him. We need to be wise and let our worship be guided by the word of God. Okay, let's continue on. So this next chunk of scriptures, plural, that I'm going to address specifically talks about visiting widows and orphans or the vulnerable, the most vulnerable in our society. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 23, 19, and also 24, 6, 10 through 13, 14 through 15, and 17. All right. Deuteronomy 23, 19 says, you shall not charge interest on loans. Loans were being made differently than from today, but really to alleviate poverty. People would not ask for a loan unless they had, were desperate. They had a need for food, your basic elements that they would need. And so God is saying to his people, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, or on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge the foreigner interest. Now, the foreigner would have been a traveler. Somebody's traveling through the region or traveling through the country. Would have been more of a business transaction. Much of our loans today would be more business transactions that aren't about basic food. But in this context, it was about you don't lend to your, don't charge your brother interest when, when they are needing it for their basic needs, but you may charge a foreigner interest. But you may not charge, verse 20, continuing, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to, possess, to take possession of it. So it's God who's the one that has blessed them. It was God who's the one that had given them the ability to, lo- to, bar- or to lend to their brother. So don't charge interest. Interest on loans does not alleviate the poverty problem. It exacerbates it. Continuing on in kind of the same vein is Deuteronomy 24, verse 6. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that, for that would be taking a life in pledge. So they would offer up collateral for a loan, saying, you know, this is the collateral that you would have. Um, bar- lend me money, and here's this thing in collateral in exchange for that. But the Lord is saying, don't take their mill or an upper millstone. A mill or a millstone is a machine that was basic and essential for everyday life in order to provide for their daily bread. To take their mill or their millstone is basically to take away their ability to eat, to have food. So, and the Lord's saying, don't do that. Look again um, at Deuteronomy 24, verse 10. It says, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. Don't go in there and scope out his stuff. Don't go looking at, oh, I'll take that, I'll take that, I'll take that for collateral. Don't, don't do that to him because that brings shame on the person. And the Lord is so concerned about the dignity of all of his people. He's not just concerned about the dignity of the wealthy. He wants the poor to to also be able to maintain their dignity. So don't go in and collect the pledge. Verse 11 says, "You You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Again, concern for the the health and well-being of this person to keep his coat his only cloak would be to cause him suffering in the night so return it to him verse 14 you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns you shall give him wages on the same day before the sun sets for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Now, again, we've got hired workers, somebody who is poor and needy. Pay him on the day so that he can eat, is what the Lord is saying. Make sure he doesn't starve. Give him what he needs for that day. It is striking to me how the Lord continually is seeking to preserve his people in two ways. He's, he's, he's teaching those who have more 
to not be selfish with what they have, but to pour themselves out on behalf of those who are less fortunate, to not cause hurt and suffering, to not exacerbate, but to alleviate their suffering. In each of these scenarios, the people of God are being called to act selflessly and lovingly to their fellow Israelites. They're being called to maintain their dignity, to protect them, to build them up, to honor the other person. This is what it looks like to act justly, regardless of the person's socioeconomic status, regardless of whether they're poor or rich, male or female, a sojourner or a brother. The general rule of thumb is to not pervert justice in any way. Deuteronomy 24:17 says, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. You shall not pervert justice. To pervert justice is to turn away from what is good, moral, true, and right, and to pervert it. To pervert it away from the way God has designed it and still call it justice is what is happening in our world today. And once again, as women of God, we need to be discerning people. We need to know what God has defined justice as, what this looks like, what we are called to live like and to be. Because the people of God are not just called to act justly, but we are to be characterized as a just people. We're to be just because we reflect God's justice in our world. It will look different. It's going to look different from the way the world perhaps defines justice because we're called to be salt and light. That means it's going to be different. It's going to be distinct. It's not going to be like the justice of the world because the justice of the world has been polluted by worldly thinking. But true justice is found in Scripture. And as we walk in obedience to, to it, it will, it will shine a light in our world, and some will see it, and some will be drawn to the light. And how do we do this? By remembering. Again, he constantly takes the people back to what he's done for them. Remember, you were a slave. Remember, I set you free. So because I've done this for you, then you act in this way. He continues on, I want us to drop to, um, or move back to Deuteronomy 23, 24, and we're going to still keep in mind this idea of the justice of God and what this looks like. Deuteronomy 23, 24 says, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's stand, standing grain, you may pluck your ear, the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So the justice of God is better than justice of man. His justice, I want us to see, protects both the rich and the poor. His justice isn't necessarily saying everybody has to be the same. But his justice is better than that. He protects the property rights of the owner of the land while providing for the one who is hungry. The one who is hungry is able to eat the grapes or eat the wheat from, from the land, but not take it. They're not given the harvest. The harvest belongs to the landowner, to the farmer. That belongs to him. To harvest from the farmer on the part of the hungry person is to exploit the generosity of God and of his neighbor. Look at um, Deuteronomy um, 23, 24, I'm sorry, verse 19. This is a similar passage. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember, again, remember, this is our motive, this is why, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So the harvest is part of God's gracious provision for his people, and therefore it belongs to him. 
And we've talked about joyful generosity characterizing the people of God because they are so keenly aware of God's joyful generosity for them. And we see this within God's law, his gracious provision for both the poor and the rich. We are shown what impartiality looks like and how both the poor and the rich are to be honored. We have the dignity of the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless. These, these are words that are used to describe the vulnerable amongst us, those who are poor amongst us. The sojourner, widow, and fatherless, their dignity is maintained by providing them through this method in the word of God, an opportunity to work for their own food, to glean for their own food. They're not, the Lord is not just commanding handouts, but he's saying to the, the, the farmer or to the um, landowner, leave some produce in the, in the land for them. Don't, don't take everything for yourself. So he's prohibiting and restricting greed in the, their hearts and teaching them to, to selflessly give to their neighbors, but he's also helping with the dignity of those who are struggling by allowing them to be able to work with their own hands to be able to work with their own hands and feed their, their families. This restores a person's dignity. And this is why God's way of doing things is so good and so beautiful and so right. It doesn't favor the poor over the rich or the rich over the poor. He's concerned about all people, no matter what their socioeconomic status is. And so this is what the Word of God teaches us about how God views justice and how we're to interact with those amongst us who are more vulnerable. We are to seek their good. We are to be selfless. We are to seek to restore their dignity and their honor. Let's continue on, and let's look at Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. I told you we were going to be everywhere. Are you still with me? Okay. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain, refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Don't make rash promises. It's that simple. Be careful what comes out of your mouth. Be careful what you promise. Be careful what you say. Why? Because we have a God who speaks truth at all times. We have a God who is full of integrity. We have a God who makes a vow and will keep that vow to his own hurt. And so his people are called to be people of their word. So it's better, the word of God tells us, to not say anything at all than to rashly make a vow. This is true for us today. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's like you shouldn't even need an oath. You shouldn't need to make a vow because you're so full of integrity that your yes, everybody knows, is going to mean you'll be there. Your yes will be your yes and your no will be your no. Let's continue on. We're going to jump down to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Now, the label in my Bible calls... This section of scripture, laws concerning divorce. And I was surprised to learn that this is actually the only Old Testament law concerning divorce. I thought there would have been more. It is not a full legis legislation on divorce at all. And it's one of the laws we looked at a couple last week, but it's one of those laws that is seeking to restrict a practice that is already happening in this cultural context a practice that was already being abused in this cultural context. So let's look at Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, and the word indecency is intended in its original language, hints at sexual immorality of some sort, if he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house and she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, this poor woman, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband 
who has sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, anyone in this room or anyone listening who has ever personally experienced divorce knows that there is no such thing as a good divorce. There is no such thing as an easy divorce. There is no such thing as a painless divorce. It's painful, and it's as painful as a death, for it is a tearing apart of two souls that have been joined together by God. There is no way to extricate that painlessly. And because of the pain of divorce, God hates it. He does not hate divorced people. He does not hate divorced people. But because of the pain, because of the suffering, because of the brokenheartedness, God hates divorce. And this legislation on divorce was intended to restrict abuses of divorce that were happening then, and even you could carry it forward to today. There was easy divorce. It was becoming a form of legalized adultery. A man could have a wife, decide he doesn't like his wife for whatever reason he wanted, and find another wife and marry her, and then just move from woman to woman to woman. And this legislation is actually intended to protect the woman, to protect women from becoming um, commodities, just sexual commodities at the behest of this man. It seeks to keep men from robbing women of their dignity and their value. So in, in telling the man, prohibiting the man from remarrying his first wife, she has, um, he is, it is, the Lord is restricting, causing him to stop, causing him to think about what he's doing before he does it. You may think she's bad, but you don't know what the next one's going to be like. You might not be able to, she might be the best one yet. It's, called, it's, it's intended to, to restrict him, to make him think. Like, if I divorce her, I can't marry her again. I can't take her back. This is an abomination to the Lord. And we talked about this last week, that marriage is sacred in the eyes of God because of the purpose with which he made it. It's a covenant relationship. It's a relationship that involves vows, vows that we say before the Lord. Make, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And playing fast and loose with the sacred relationship is an abomination to the Lord. And Jesus teaches, when he's teaching on marriage, that the only reason that there is an allowance for divorce is not because God approved of it, but rather because of the hardness of people's hearts. We all know situations and circumstances where somebody's heart is so hard, they will not turn from their sin. They will not turn from their rebellion against God. No matter what is said to them, no matter what efforts are made in order to reconcile a relationship, there is a hardness of heart where people will not turn from their sin in repentance. And so as an act of mercy, I believe God has allowed divorce because of that, because of the hardness of people's hearts, because of things like repeated adultery and, and abuse of all kinds. And that when there's no repentance, there's an act of mercy on the part of God where he opens the way for them to be um, freed from that. But on the other hand, it's not, divorce is not intended to be a free-for-all. And so this law is there to seek to restrict this. Let's continue on. Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. Verse 5 actually teaches us that a man is to seek to be happy with his wife. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. The first law was intended to curb lust and legalized adultery. This law is intended to promote healthy and good marriages. He is to be free at home for an entire year, not to go in the army or any other public duty, so that he can build a healthy and good marriage with his wife. 
Wouldn't it be awesome if we brought this one forward to the 21st century? I think this is a great law. I have no idea why this one got lost. Unfortunately, it does not move forward. We don't get a year off the first year of marriage, but the principle does remain. God desires for his people to promote and pursue healthy and good marriages, marriages that are for our good, for our flourishing, and to give him glory. Jesus himself affirms God's design for marriage and offers himself as the example of a perfect bridegroom who sacrificially loves and serves his wife, the church, laying his life down for her and washing her with his word. Let's continue on. Drop down to Deuteronomy 20, ver 24, verse 7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, let's pause here just for a few minutes to talk about this kind of slavery. Shadow slavery is an evil in the eyes of God. It's clear in Scripture. This is what we saw Joseph's brothers do to him in Genesis. They sold their brother as a slave. This is what we see in the African slave trade that has haunted our nation. This is chattel slavery, and it is evil. It is an abomination. It was strictly, clearly forbidden in God's word. And this shows you how important it is how to, that we must be people who rightly divide the word of truth, because there were many who used scripture to defend slavery, and that is just not true. God's word is clear. Chattel slavery is an evil, sinful thing, and anyone who sells another person is worthy, shall, shall receive the death penalty. It is strictly forbidden in God's word. Continue on in verse 8. Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. Now, this is not legislation specifically on what to do with if you have leprosy or any skin disease. It's assuming that the people are already aware of the, the regulations that were given in Numbers or Leviticus. Um, so it's just a reminder for the people to follow through with that, to, to follow through with the procedures that Leviticus spells out for them. And they were also to remember what the Lord did to Miriam. Miriam was Moses' sister, and she had complained against Moses and his leadership. And God struck her with leprosy, and she was exiled from the camp for seven days. Miriam's leprosy was a judgment for her sin. And she, as she was exiled from the camp for seven days, she had to go through then before she was allowed to enter back into the, the people of God, into the assembly of, of, of the people of God. They, she had to go through the cleansing process. If she had to do it as Moses' sister and somewhat of a, a woman of renown in, the, in, this, in Israel, then they would need to do this. God had made an example out of her, and they were called to remember her. Now, in their, in their culture, there was a belief that leprosy was often God's judgment. So people who had leprosy were alienated. They were cut off from the people of God. They were excised. They were sent out to the outside the camp, and they were not allowed back in until they were cleansed. And so when we fast forward in Scripture and we come to Jesus' life and ministry, this is what makes Jesus' actions towards lepers so beautiful. Not only are these individual lepers who have experienced so much alienation and loneliness, not only is he touching them to heal them, not only are they being brought into the community once again because they are being healed and cleansed, but Jesus is also answering the question from Job 14.4, which says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one except God. For thousands of years, people washed and went through all the cleansing rituals, but could not make themselves clean. But as Jesus walked on the earth, he did just that. By his touch, they were clean. By his word, they were clean. 
by his presence, he is making what is unclean clean. Drop down with me to Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. While children are not unaffected by the sin of their parents and the consequences thereof, nor are parents, frankly, unaffected by the sin of their children. This truth that is being taught in this law is that we each individually are responsible for the consequences or the judgment for our sin. This law helps us understand the story of Achan that we see in Joshua. Do you remember the story of Achan where he and his whole entire family were devoted to destruction because of the sin of Achan? Well, knowing what the Lord has said in his law, that fathers or children are not to be put to death for their father's sin, we can read that scripture through the understanding that everyone in the family who died in judgment died because of their own sin. This is how we take one scripture and interpret another scripture with, with scripture. And this is a process that we need to do. But the point that we have for us today is that we, when we stand before God in the day of judgment, we cannot, we will not be able to blame our parents for our choices and our, the consequences for our sin. We will not be able to stand before God and say, well, it was where I lived. It was the time period that I lived in. It was my parents' fault. It was my siblings' fault. It was this person's fault. It was that person's fault. We will take, bear the responsibility, each one of us, for our own actions. Chapter 25. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges be decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Over and over, we're taught that the punishment must fit the crime. It needs to be in proportion to whatever it is he has been tried. Now, um, in, in, this, in this passage of scripture, please note with me that the person is to receive a fair and just trial. And if it comes to terms, if they come to the, the judgment that he deserves to be beaten, the judge himself will be there overseeing this. The one who is issuing the judgment will oversee the judgment and will observe it and watch it. Verse 3 tells us that 40 stripes may be given him, but not more. Lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. So you don't have to do 40. But don't do more than 40. Why? Because of the dignity of the person. It's a restriction in corporal punishment. Without this restriction of the law, somebody could be beaten to death. Somebody could be beaten beyond any recognition. And so this is to keep, preserve and protect this person, preserve and protect the person, the people who are issuing the judgment and the punishment from reacting in rage. Let's continue on. Verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. I think this is an interesting one because I think it's interesting because it's quoted twice in the New Testament. You wouldn't think so, but it is. So muzzling an ox prevents him from eating as he works. The principle of this law is that an animal should not be begrudged food and sustenance as he works for man. That's the heart underneath the law. And frankly, I would not have known that if, not, if it had not been for Paul in the New Testament who actually tells us what this is all about. Paul quotes this law twice, once in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 10, and another in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. And he's speaking about those who are working in ministry, having the right to fair wages for their work. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. So don't you love it when the Bible tells you exactly what something means? And that's what it does. Paul is, used, is saying that the principle that we carry forward into the New Testament from this law is that our pastors, our shepherds, those who are caring for our spiritual soul 
are supposed to be cared for and paid by the people who they are caring for. Don't muzzle him. Provide for him while he is working and serving you. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. Let's continue on. 25, verse 5 through 10 is this law concerning leveret marriages. Now, this law is, is concerning the, the continuation of a person's name and the continuation of their inheritance in the covenant people of God. And so we know the story of Ruth and Boaz, which is an example of this law being lived out for us. Um, so keep that in mind as we talk through this. But it says um, that if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother should go in and marry her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So in order to keep this husband's name and preserve his name and to keep his inheritance within the family line, this law is put in place so that the brother would step in and fill his brother's shoes. Now, that first child from that union was to belong to the brother who had died. That son would get the brother's inheritance. That son would keep the brother's name. So this would be a cost to this man who marries the widow. He would be building up his brother's household instead of his own initially. And so the brother does not have to do it. He's not forced. He's not required. He is allowed to not do it. And reasons for him wanting to refuse them would be that it would cost him. That, would, that he would actually be forfeiting an inheritance. And this, according to the word of God, because he's not willing to build up his brother's house, brings shame upon his name, upon his household. Why would it bring shame? Because this is the opposite of everything the law has been teaching all along. The opposite. We've seen this over and over and over again as God's calling his people to live justly. He is calling them to put others' needs before their own, to build others up instead of yourself. Our natural tendency in our flesh is to build ourselves up, to put our needs first. And so the law, and the Lord through his law, is turning that around and teaching his people what it looks like to selflessly serve and love others instead. Now, this is just a law that we obviously don't bring into today's culture. This is for their specifically cultural context. However, the principle that is underneath the law applies today. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The principles that, that go, are embedded within the law of God transfer into the New Testament. We still live by them. Let's continue on. The potential for a man's name to be cut off from the people of Israel because of not having a, job, a child is in some ways castrating him. This is why Moses in his sermon moves to the next law. Deuteronomy 25 and 11, 12 says, when men fight with one another and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. You shall have no pity. So, <laughs> this is a little bit more than what it sounds like. She's not just trying to stop a fight here. She's actually seizing, trying to castrate, harm permanently this man. And the law is forbidding that because this is such a serious issue. We already saw that in, in chapter 23, verse 1 where those who have been castrated are cut off from the people of God. So they would be cut off from the assembly of the Lord, but they're also, if, they're, if they lose their ability to have children, they are cut off. Their name will be cut off and their inheritance lost. And so this is a serious crime that is being perpetrated by this woman. And because it is serious, her hand is to be cut off. 
Lastly, let's finish our study today by looking at Deuteronomy 25, verse 13. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair, or also it can be translated a just or righteous weight, you shall have. A full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land, and that the Lord your God has given you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. This is the law of equal weights and measures, and it is intended to prevent the exploitation of others. You are to have, this is, the, they would be um, trading and they would have rocks for selling and rocks for buying. And they were exploiting people who were buying and selling by having different weights and measures for each. And exploit, and this is forbidden by God. Exploitation is the action of treating someone unfairly in order to benefit for yourself from that. And this is an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. And then he gives an example of someone who exploited the people of Israel. And that someone is Amalek. He says, remember what Amalek did to you. Remember him. So this, the, these verses 17 through the end of the chapter are an example of somebody who exploited the people of God. And this is a serious thing. He attacked Israel, but he didn't attack the strong he didn't attack the people at the front, the able-bodied men. He went to the back of the people, where the people who were weak and the people who were tired and the people who were lagging behind and the people who were old were that. And he cut them off from their people and he attacked them. And God is saying this is what it means. This is like measuring with, with different weights and measures. This is what exploitation can look like. And it is an abomination to the Lord. Do, remember him. And he went on in verse 19. He says, therefore, because of what he has done and the way he exploited the vulnerable amongst you, therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. He serves as a warning of what not to be like, what not to do as the people of God. Amalek did not fear the Lord, and instead he exploited and attacked the vulnerable. He cut them off, and therefore he was to be cut off. His name was to be blotted out from memory. And finally it happened around the time of King Hezekiah, the Amalekites ceased to be a nation. But let's, let's, let's hold up Amalek and what he represents and what he's an example of to Jesus. Jesus, the complete antithesis of Amalek, feared the Lord. And instead of exploiting people, exploiting the vulnerable, he showed compassion on them. He laid down his life for his people. He pursued and protected the vulnerable. And because of this, he is given the name that is above all names. And because of Jesus, those of us who are found in him are also given an everlasting name. Remember what Isaiah 56 said? The Lord your God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him because those already were gathered. And in verse 5 it says, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. These people who God is gathering, the outcasts of Israel, those who've been cut off, the Gentiles, they're being given an everlasting name that will never be cut off. This is the result of the work of God in salvation. These are the people that God has called, as Romans 8.28 says, to be conformed into the image of his Son. We are all called through this law to reflect Jesus, not Amalek. Amalek is a reflection of his father, the devil. And yet the truth of the matter is, in our sinful nature, we are more like Amalek than we are like Jesus. We need Jesus to make us more like Jesus. And praise God, he is willing to do so. He has offered us a new heart, replacing our Amalek-like heart with a Jesus-like heart. A heart that fears the Lord and desires to do his will. He places in our new hearts the Holy Spirit, 
who empowers us to walk in obedience to the word of Jesus, to the scriptures. You know, as I've been studying the law of God, specifically these, these stipulations that have been so challenging to our minds and to our hearts, in the back of my head constantly is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And what I'm coming to understand about the Old Testament law and about what Jesus is teaching is that Jesus is not t- preaching a new law. Jesus did not come on the scene and preach a new law. He preached the old law made new, transformed by him. At the end of Jesus' sermon on the law in Matthew, he said these words, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Do we hear the words of the law of Moses transformed by Jesus? Do we hear them and build our life upon them? If so, we are building our life upon solid foundation. By the grace of God and the power of his spirit, may we be women who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, for she will be blessed in all her doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that we would be a people who walk by the power of your spirit, that we would act justly, that we would love mercy, and we would walk humbly with our God. We pray this in powerful name of Jesus. Amen.